taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. What's interesting about ego is that you can't pick up a Buddhist text, a Stoic text, an Epicurean text, a Middle Eastern text, and not find some warning about the perils of ego and hubris and pride. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. It's important to remember that philosophy was supposed to be practical. It was not supposed to be this ridiculous theoretical nonsense. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, the show that looks inside the mind of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success, how they overcame their own personal challenges, their habits, their rituals, routines, and most importantly, their advice for living an inspiring life. We'll hear from the world's top health experts, nutritionists, entrepreneurs, athletes, business leaders, and professionals. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. This week, we speak with Ryan Holiday. I'm sure Ryan will be very well known to many of our listeners. Ryan is the author of six books, including New York Times bestsellers, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic. Ryan's books have been widely read among some of the world's best athletes, coaches, and professional sports executives, and his work has been described as leading the charge for stoicism, which has been gaining traction among Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. So Ryan, welcome to the Inspiring Lives podcast. Thank you. Do you remember the actual moment when you said to yourself, actually, I, I actually can do this. I, I, I now consider myself to be an author or a writer. You know, I, I don't think there was one singular moment. I mean, I started writing online in 2006. Like, I, I think I, I put up my first blog the day after I graduated from high school. Um, and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't get paid for writing until my first book came out. Uh, which would have been in the summer of 2012. So there was a six-year period there. Um, I I could have, you know, there were moments where I started to feel like I was getting better. And there were moments, obviously, at the end of that, when, you know, when I got a book deal in 2011, I certainly felt like I had arrived to some degree. And, you know, the moment I sat down to write that book, uh, you know, in the the several months previous, that that felt like I was getting a, a little bit closer. So I don't think there was like this moment where I was like, okay, I am now a writer. I don't even know if I I really felt that way, um, even after the book. Uh, I think it's one of those things where it's like you know you look yourself in the mirror every day and you don't see that you're getting older, but you are, and so. You know, and then maybe one day you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I actually am very old. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think so. So it was more like a gradual process that that even caught me a little bit by surprise, if I'm being perfectly honest. You, you've, you're recognized for your writing and obviously the enormous research you do and the size of your book library. And you said that the real reason that you spent so much time with your nose inside books is because you believed you were searching for something. What, what were you searching for? Well, I, I think uh, philosophically they would say what we're searching for is, you know, how to live, right? I think uh, that's, that's the purpose of education, right? The purpose of education is not uh, 
really to get a job or, uh, you know, to learn how to spell or to do anything. The reason the human mind gravitates towards these things, in my opinion, is, is to learn how to live. And, you know, um, we, we happen to live at a time where sort of religion has fallen away, even, even a lot of the, like what it means to live in a certain country, you know, to be an American or to be a Brit or to be a Kiwi or whatever, um, you know, e- even some of that identity, like the, that the American way of life has fallen away. And so I, I think what I, I've always been looking for, uh, in my reading and my learning and, and the mentors that I've had is like, you know, how do you live? How do you do stuff? What, what, what is the best way to do X, Y, and Z? You know, what's the right way to live? How do you deal with your own thoughts? And, and so I think, I think that's what's always spurred me on. And I think as a writer, I'm not saying how to live. I think I'm just yeah. talking about the questions that I have and some of the answers that I'm I've found in my own journey. I just want to camp there for a second. I, I, I find that interesting. And I, I guess I'm curious that in this world right now, Ryan, where we seem to be living, because of social, we seem to be spending more of our time living in other people's worlds. I guess with your observations now with what you do and who you get to mix with, do you think our desire to learn how to live better is still the same? Or do you think that may be somewhat dwindled because our attention is being taken away by the way other people live and almost a sense of envy in our mind? Well, yeah, look, I'm not saying necessarily that lots of people are searching for how to live. Sadly, you know, look, if you play video games 40 hours a week, that's 40 hours that you don't have to ask yourself how to live, that you don't have to think about these tough questions, right? Or, you know, if you're addicted to social media or, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, uh, gorging yourself on food or sex or any of the other sort of abundances that we have in the modern world. These are all ways to prevent yourself from having to ask those questions. And I think, um, I'm, I, I, I've tried to sort of maintain some level of sobriety because I think that search is really important. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, that's, I'm interested in that. And I think the little tribe of people who follow my writing, I think they're interested in that. I think deep down, we are all interested in it, but some of us are maybe afraid of what we'll find. So you've become known for your work around the term ego. And I guess if we could just go down that, that laneway for a second is, is ego damaging us today, right? Sure. I mean, look, it's a timeless problem. Uh, you know, you read the Odyssey and you see hubris and, and ego in Odysseus. So it's not exactly a new problem. But um, I, I think I think what's interesting about ego is that you can't pick up a Buddhist text, a Stoic text, an Epicurean text, an Aristotelian text, of uh, a Middle Eastern text, uh, and not find some warning about the perils of ego and hubris and pride. These are the sort of perennial human problems. Um, but I, I think, you know, our, our culture of abundance certainly has ego in abundance as well. I think, you know, a culture of social media and, and, and media in general creates more of that status anxiety, that competition. Um, 
I, I guess what what I'm what I think uh, one of the messages of the book is okay. It's never been easier that today than today uh, to start a company or write a book or uh, you know create a movement uh, because so many of the tools that we now have make these things simpler and less expensive. And so, really, then the main impediment is not you know, how can I get someone to let me write a book? Um, now the problem is, can I write the best book that I'm capable of or will my ego get in the way? And so that's why I think ego is so critical and important. You've talked about the ego being the enemy and something that I have thought is if ego is the enemy, then who is our friend? Well, I think we are our friend, right? I think the ego is something separate, something beyond us, right? And I, I realized that these definitions can vary. So uh, I, I'm not trying to, you know, this isn't the Freudian ego or the, you know, actual medical psychological definition of ego. I'm saying ego is this sort of extra, this sort of delusional, uh, I'm better than kind of belief. And so I think what's our friend is truth, right? Um, I'd rather have, I'd rather deal with someone who has an accurate understanding of their own abilities, their, uh, a, a true sense of their strengths and weaknesses, rather than some delusional person that thinks they're Superman. So it can be a positive attribute then? Well, I think confidence is important. Uh, I just think ego is something very different than confidence. So in your mind, why would ego exist? We, we have all sorts of natural uh, inclinations or, or, uh, you know, devices that are not great. Look, it's, it, it, why does jealousy exist? Why does murderous rage exist? Right. Why does, uh, why does lust exist? Why does, why do, uh, our abilities to believe in silly supernatural things exist? Right. Um, there's lots of reasons why they would exist. None of them have anything to do with our personal happiness or with uh, with with truth or reality. That in fact, they're they're almost coping mechanisms for those things. Do we go through different stages with it, Ryan? I mean, does ego can it can it take us to somewhere and be a positive, and then we get there be a negative? Like, are there different stages we can go through with it? Well, so my my contention is that wherever you are, wherever you're doing, uh, there's no way that ego is this sort of positive addition, right? I've never been trying to think of a situation in your life. You know, a conflict, uh, uh, you know, a beautiful moment, uh, anything, and go. You know what would have made that better? Like more <laughs> ego. Like more ego is what I needed there. Um, but but I do think at different stages in our life, ego manifests itself differently, right? So the ego of a of a seventeen year old male teenager who thinks that he's gonna, you know, be an, a professional football player. That's that's one ego. Uh, the ego of the celebrity or a multimillionaire or an accomplished athlete or whatever, uh, that's a different form of ego. And then the ego that, that, that's there when we're at our rock bottom, when we've just gotten our ass kicked or you know, been dealt some massive set, setback, that's going to be a different form of ego. It's, it's going to be toxic in each one. I, I will say that early on in our lives, ego ego has less downside, right? So it, it's like, um, if you're incredibly talented and, and um, you know, uh, on this upward trajectory, it may be that you're able to compensate with, for that ego or, or even that that ego is almost 
kind of a, an adapted device that lets you deal with the with not needing to to feel how scared or uh, overwhelming everything you're doing. It's it's almost like a drug, right? Uh, like like the the musician might be uh, might go through a, a, a an an addict phase at the beginning of their career because they've become a celebrity overnight or they're the kid that's going place. They have so much pain from their childhood that it's sort of this numbing agent. But at a certain point, it's going to turn on you and become a problem. Is, is it kind of like we confuse confidence in a way with ego? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's, that's what we do. We, we, we look at some people like, look, smart people look at Donald Trump and go, that's the most insecure person on the planet. Uh, and uh, there's another person. There's another piece of the population that looks at Donald Trump and goes, "Man, that guy's really confident." Um, it's it's it, it in truth, it's it's much more uh, ego and delusion than it is, you know, sort of true confidence. But uh, we do we do tend to confuse. I say like confidence is important. Even aggression is important, but that's not the same as ego. And is uh, hearing you on different podcasts and reading your work. Um, is is humility part of this, Ryan? Like, is humility, say, the, the kryptonite to, to ego, the true ego? Well, I, I think if we can say that humility is an understanding of our weaknesses and, and confidence is an understanding of our strengths, we're really great when we're when we've got the two of them together. You had this beautiful term you called the oceanic feeling. Can you just run that for us? Like, what is that? It, it's not my term. It's a it's a philosophical term. I got it from the philosopher Pierre Hadot, who was a student of Stoicism. And he was talking about these moments where, you know, you're walking along the ocean at night and you experience this sort of, you're, you're just next to this thing that dwarfs you in every sense, right? It's both scary and exhilarating at the same time. It's the, it's the feeling you might get in a national park, you know, looking up at a beautiful monument. Uh, it, it's this feeling of sort of connectedness to a larger whole, um, but also feeling really small in comparison to the magnitude of what's around you. And that's what I think, you know, if there is a natural ego killer, that's it. You have said that you live on a farm and you have cattle and donkeys. Well, I, I do live on a farm. I haven't. I don't say that. I, I do. But yeah. <laughs> so you you do live on a farm. Yes. And you have you run your own cattle. You have donkeys, and I suspect other critters. Yeah. Is is the country and rural part for you? Because that's obviously a choice. Is that part of your oceanic thing? Yeah. It's it's certainly a different pace of life out here. I, I mean, I spend a, I, I have a place in town and I, I'm there pretty often as well. I sort of split my time, but, but when I'm, when I'm here, um, it's a slower pace. Uh, people are not concerned with what I do for a living. They're not concerned with what's going on on the internet. You know, there's always a million problems to solve. You know, when I walk out, I'm going to do it probably after this. I got to go walk out and check on the cows. And, uh, you know, it's just you stand out there and the, you know, the, the, the wind is rustling through the trees and the, you know, you, there's, you can smell the, just sort of the grass and, and the cows are just standing there and they, they're doing what they do, you know, and then they don't care about you. <laughs> and, uh, 
there it's a it's a it's a it's a peaceful sort of calming ego antidote in my opinion the one thing i've really admire about you ryan hearing a lot of your stuff over the years is you have this amazing ability to recall information learning quotes philosophy and it really is very impressive and i hear you do it a lot you've done already since we started talking What's your process for learning? You obviously read a lot. You take in a lot. You're reading some pretty heavy stuff with the Stoics, which we'll talk about in a second. What's Ryan's process for taking information from books, papers, podcasts, but then making it into something that you can recall because you're very good at it? The recall thing, I I don't think I naturally have a very good memory. Uh, I don't think... Uh, I think if you listen to old interviews with me, I, I didn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't as good at it as I might be now and hopefully I'll be better at it in the future. Um, but it's a, it's a process of, for me, it's a process of reading, uh, widely and deeply, uh, taking notes as I do. Uh, then, um, I go back through the books that I've read and I transfer that information by hand, uh, to note cards. Then I organize those note cards. And, uh, it, so it, and then I try to write and use the information as much as possible. Part, part of the reason that I do these, uh, I I try to quote things from memory is that it increases the process of recall. So it's, it's, it's not this thing that you magically get by reading something once it's a, it's a process that you, uh, have to, you have to go through and you have to, commit yourself to, and and then you you tend to find that it's there when you need it. So you're reading it. Do you highlight in your books or are you a person who doesn't like highlighting in books and or on a Kindle and then take it straight to note cards? Is there a process in between that or is it straight read to, to note, note card? Yeah, I read almost uh, everything on with, with physical books. I don't do really anything online uh, or anything uh, digital in terms of Kindle and stuff. Uh, and then, um, I do, I, I write in books. I, I don't use a highlighter. I usually just scribble with a pen. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put a line next to a section or I'll underline it or I'll write notes on the side. So I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not, let's say I'm not very respectful to the books that I have. I tear, <laughs> I tear, I tear them apart. I feel like that's what they're there for. Like as an author, when someone comes to me, if someone comes to me with a copy of the obstacles, the way, and it's got tons of writing in it and pages folded or note cards. I, to me, that's like the highest praise that, that a reader can offer a writer. That's so interesting. And then when you are making these note cards, is it almost like you are an investigator looking for the next great learning and you're curious that you're going to record that in a note card and, and the intention is that you will then do something with that as opposed to just recording for prosperity? Yeah, I mean, I, again, if, if I'm looking for how to live, I'm not just looking for random bits of it. I'm not looking for facts and dates about, you know, random shit. I, I'm looking for information that I can put to use in one way or another. Uh, I'm looking for quotes. I'm looking for insights. I'm looking for stories. I'm looking for you know, breakthroughs that, that, that I can use in my life. And then obviously one of the ways that I use things in my life is, is in my writing. So every story that you would see in one of my books is a story that I 
found through my own research. You are very well known for your work around the Stoics of Stoicism. I'm just wondering, just based on what we've just talked about, have, have you found that the Stoics were great journalists or people who kept journals and kept a lot of records like that? Right. Yeah, of, of course. Uh, that that's that's what the philosophy is. You know, Marcus Aurelius would talk about sort of preparing for the day ahead. So it, we we get the sense that he did a lot of his writing in the mornings. Uh, and then Seneca talked about sort of putting each day up for review. So he's you know, what did I do well today? What could I have done better? You know, uh, Epictetus would would say at the end of the day, you should ask yourself. Um, you know, what duties did I leave undone? And this sort of process of writing this down, of taking sort of quiet, reflective time is really, really important. Um, Actually, I did a book, it it hasn't come out yet, it's supposed to come out in a week, called The Daily Stoic Journal. And the idea is you have a prompt and you meditate on that prompt in the morning and then you reflect in the evening on how you did following that prompt. So I, I would say that the Stoics were nothing if not journalers. It's funny when you look at Seneca and the great Stoics talking about reflection and gratitude and how positive psychologists and psychoanalysts will say now that it's one of the greatest precursors to happiness. It's almost like this full circle we've gone through that we knew it all these years ago from the greats, but we kind of now are rediscovering it as a wonderful tool for us to find ourselves. Yeah, I think the Stoics sort of knew intuitively or knew naturally what what we're now confirming with science. When I hear about philosophers, my immediate perception was guys who spent a lot of time asking questions, walking in circles with their hands behind their back, thinking about stuff and, and posing questions. Yet I heard... Mark Devine on his podcast just recently talk about Marcus Aurelius and the meditations. And one of the passages he talked about was Marcus Aurelius saying that it was about the thinking, but philosophy was also about action. But I don't hear that as much talked about, Ryan. Can you sort of speak to your understanding of stoicism? It's not just the thinking and pondering part, but it's actually doing something with it. Well, look, the, the, the Stoic that the Stoics loved was Cato. Um, and it's really interesting to think that Cato never wrote anything down. So- Socrates is the same way, right? We only know about Socrates, the philosopher, because of what his student Plato wrote down. Um, so, so philosophy to the Stoics was not this thing you did in a classroom. It was how you lived your life. It was supposed to help you solve the practical problems of your life. And uh, it's, it's important to re- remember that that is, what, uh, that is what philosophy was. This modern understanding of it is, uh, is actually the, the perversion. Um, philosophy was supposed to be practical. It was not supposed to be uh, this ridiculous, uh, you know, theoretical nonsense. The Stoics talk about indifference, and I've heard you mention this. And in, I guess, in modern times, indifference can be a negative, but the Stoics had a different view on indifference. Can you just sort of run that for us? Yeah, so the Stoics uh, would say, for instance, that we should be indifferent to wealth, not that you should crave it or not that you should... uh, 
not enjoy it if you have it, but that you should be indifferent to it, right? That so so indifference now implies a sort of apathy. What the Stoics are really saying is that um, uh, the things that are outside your control should uh, you should not have opinions about, right? So uh, take money or take being famous or you know any of these things, or great weather, whatever it is. These are outside your control. So if you really, really need it or want it or demand it, the problem is unless you get it, you're going to be unhappy. Um, if you have, if you have, uh, you know, let's say you inherit a million dollars. Well, that's that's wonderful. If you now have your your self worth tied up in your net worth, what happens if uh, I don't know? There's a financial crisis and your million dollars becomes ten thousand dollars. Well, now uh, now should your should your should your self worth diminish an equal amount, right? Um, or conversely. Um, if you have this million dollars and you think money is pointless and, and awful and you hate it, well, does that mean you don't get to enjoy this thing that, that, that sort of luck or fortune or, you know, a random stroke of fate, um, happened to give you, um, the, the Stokes would say, look, just, just don't take it too seriously either way. Gee, that's a powerful message for today, Ryan. When I would, I would think that a lot of people look at their self-worth through their likes and retweets or their revenue or how much money they're making, it, it must be, I mean, there's so much power in that by looking inside to say, well, how do you value yourself with your own self-worth? Yeah, that's, that's and it, it's shocking how sort of modern that issue was then and now. I've heard you talk, so speak of money, I've heard you talk that you carry a coin in your pocket do you still do that? Yeah, I, I, I carry two. I have one that says Memento Mori, which is a reminder of uh, one's own mortality. And then on the other one, I have a coin that says Amor Fati, which is a, this idea of sort of embracing everything that happens to you. And so, yeah, I, I, keep, I keep both of those with me uh, everywhere I go. I, I touch them throughout the day whenever my hand's in my pocket. And it's a sor- this sort of reminder of the the message of the philosophy. We hear a lot about being in the moment, not in the past, not in the future, bring yourself to the moment. And most people would reply and say it's to do with the senses. Do you find that those coins not only bring you to the moment, but also frame the moment for you around their meaning? Yeah. I mean, I think this idea of having something physical that you can touch, that is an image so it's not just a word, but an image. And there's a quote on the back of each one, but there's an image that's sort of sort of a theme. I think this is really important. So you're sort of getting it, you're getting the 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 visual sense, you're getting the physical sensation, you're getting the sort of spiritual imagery of it, you're getting it all. Uh, at the same time, I think that's really important. We hear a lot about having mentors, which I totally buy into. Do you believe that you could consider people who are no longer on the planet like a great stoic? Do you believe you could look to them and include them in your great mentors? Do you think mentors have to be living? I think of course you can. I think you absolutely should. I mean, the Stoics talk about this, right? Seneca was not alive when Cato was alive, but he talks about Cato as this sort of living, breathing hero that he judges his own behavior against. Uh, you know, and and look, both of them were basically forced 
to commit suicide. So at, you know, at Seneca's last moments on earth, he's sort of thinking about this model of the, of, uh, uh, of one of the few people who was forced to do this terrible, terrible thing by, you know, a tyrannical emperor. Um, so, and, and he would say, look, you need to choose yourself a Cato is one of the things that Seneca was saying. You need to choose someone that you go, okay, what would they do in this situation? And then look for a, for millions of people all over the world, that person is Jesus, right? They, those bracelets, what would Jesus do? You're, you're saying, not what do I want to do in this situation, not naturally what is my inclination in this situation, but what would the person who held themselves to a higher standard, what would they do in this situation? And then it's sort of a, not a fake it till you make it, because I hate that phrase, but it's more of a I'm going to I'm going to choose to follow this path rather than the one that I might if it was uh, if it was up to me or if I was if no one was watching. But it is funny though because whenever you hear people talk about mentors, even the whether it be Gary Vaynerchuk or James Altucher, we generally term mentors as real people. It, it almost seems like you look at those those philosophers as your mentors and you would go back to them with issues and sit and read and ponder and help those, get those guys to help you solve today's problems. I just think it's an interesting bend I've never heard mentioned in terms of using the past or guys that we don't have access to, but considering them to be part of your counsel. Yes, I, I think that's right. Look, I think it is important to have a mentor that's alive. You can't ask a dead stoic for specific career advice, right? Or you can't ask them <laughs> if this is the girl you should marry or not, or, you know, uh, how can I repair my relationship with my father or, you know, whatever it is. You can't ask them specific advice. And a lot of the advice we need as human beings is very specific, but there's a huge swath of, of general life advice uh, and general principles that we can take from uh, these people. And I, I strongly urge uh, you to take advantage of both kinds of mentors. So people think it's like, oh, if I get this mentor, he's gonna he or she's going to answer every one of my questions and then my, my whole life will be you know fine and easy. That's not how it goes. And on top of that, uh, other people think, well, I can learn everything that I can learn from books. And I don't think either of those is true. I'd be interested in your views and or the views you, you've adopted from the Stoics about suffering, because it's in those moments where we truly discover ourselves. We, we find what we're capable of. Sometimes we surprise ourselves. It stretches us. But out the back of that, we learn a lot and we become better. What have you learned that you've maybe taken from the Stoics that you apply to your own world when things aren't going well and it's quite dark? Well, look, m many smarter people than me who have gone through way worse things than me talk about how, you know, suffering is an inevitable part of life. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl would say suffering is part of life and the meaning of life is finding meaning in that suffering. Um, I, I would agree with that. It's, it jives with my, again, uh, fortunate experiences. Um, I think the point is that you wake up every day and shit happens, right? It doesn't happen how you want it to happen. Uh, and so to, to whatever degree that thing, to whatever that degree that happens to whatever it specifically happens to be, uh, 
that can cause suffering, right? You know, you wanted to get to work at 9 a.m. and a terrible traffic jam means you sat in traffic for an hour and a half and you got there late and then your boss yelled at you and now you're scared about losing your job. That's a form of suffering. It's first world suffering, but it's suffering. And so uh, you, that happens and that that stuff can wear you down or it can be sort of a, something that you learn from that you come to terms with and I, th I think that's that's what Stoicism is certainly talking about. That's what Viktor Frankl is talking about. I think that's what religions are trying to to teach people as well. Is that there there's going to be stuff that happens that's outside your control, and you're going to feel pain in life. And what are you going to tell yourself about that pain? If you look back through all the stuff you've done with Stoicism, the study, the learning, and and other other different forms of philosophy you're good at recalling information, facts, quotes, statements. If you had to recall one that best summed up your approach to life, which one would you call upon? Oh, man, I, I, I don't know if there's just one general one. Uh, the one I, I've sort of loved from Marcus Aurelius, there's two uh, that I think about a lot lately. He says, you know, to, to accept it without arrogance and to let it go with indifference. So he's saying, you know, to accept the good things, the rewards, the success you have without being made worse by it and, and, to, and to accept the bad things as sort of a, a, a tax in life, right? Just a, an unavoidable part of life. And then he has another one where he says basically the same thing. He says a rock uh, gains nothing by being thrown up in the air and loses nothing by coming back down. And, I, and that's something that I, I, I've tried to think about a lot lately. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's very helpful. So what have you been thinking about that? So that's interesting. It's something you've been thinking about a lot lately. Is there a particular situation that, that is appropriate for you right now? No, I, I just mean, you know, my career is going well right now, but it could turn the other direction tomorrow, right? Or, one book could do enormously well, and then another book could do less well. But none of these change me in either direction, right? I'm still me. I still have the same problems. I still have the same strengths. Uh, and, and that's what I've, I've, I want to focus on rather than you know, thinking that I'm, uh, I'm special or something. And I think I've heard you talk about the fact you want to continue to do what you're doing and to get better at your craft. Does ego encourage us to play the short game, Brian? Is it a short? Is ego a short game player? I th I think it is. I think it tends to focus on the things that don't really matter. Um, I, I think it 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 can be helpful in the short term, like you're saying, but but in the long term, you know, every everything regresses towards the mean. You've got a, a massive book collection. There is a fire at the farm. And the fire service turn up and say, mate, it's time to go. And you go, I've just got to grab one book. I won't be a second. And you have time to grab one and one only book. What would you take with you? Ah, that is a, that's a good question. I probably wouldn't, I'd probably grab my stack of note cards just because it's got everything. <laughs> like my, you know, my box of the note cards or one or more of them that I could, I could grab just because. The books can be replaced, you know what I mean? Although I do have certain sentimental attachments to different books, but ultimately it's what you take out of the books that matter. It's a good answer. I'll take that. All right, all right. However, 
you said there's a book that's quite sentimental to you. If there's one book you pick up, you don't even open, but just by having it in your hands, it makes you feel or seem more philosophical. It makes you feel like the greats are with you. What book would you grab and look at? Well, um, you know, I, and, and I, I had my original copy of Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. Someone stole it off my desk when I was working at American Apparel. And so I lost like all my notes. So that, w- that would have been one that I would have taken. Uh, but probably my copy of Meditations from Marcus Aurelius. Uh, my, my, main, my main copy is, I've got a, a handful of them, but that's the one I, I really like. I've heard you talk about being a fan of essentialism. What's something that you have subtracted from your life or taken out of your life, gotten rid of in, say, the last 100 days that's had a profound effect on you or your performance, your productivity, your value of life? Is there something you've eliminated in recent times that's had a profound effect? Um, I don't know if there's anything recently, but I am trying to always think, you know, what are the automated tasks? What are the things that I do over and over again that I can have someone do? Uh, You know, I don't do my own scheduling. I don't... You know, I don't check myself into my own flights. Uh, I, I try to, I try to get rid of, like, I try to do the things that only I can do. So even on my farm, right? There's, there's jobs that I would like to do, um, but if it's and and there there are times I'll do them when I think there's sort of therapeutic value in them. Uh, but but it's like, look, I can pay uh, some kid in the neighborhood to come dig this hole for me. I'm going to do that instead of doing it myself because, you know, I've got, I've got writing I have to do. Was there a particular moment that really changed the, the vector of your life? A moment you recall that went, you know, when, when that happened, that changed the whole, my whole view of the future, what I thought I was capable of. Do you remember a particular moment? I mean, I, I remember starting to get some emails when The Obstacles, The Way came out where the book had started to resonate or sorry, resonate in professional sports. And that was just something that I had not predicted or thought about or thought possible in any way. And, you know, it sort of took the books to a whole other level. It took, uh, you know, took my fan base to another level. It's been really interesting. You know, you, you, you work really hard on something and then, you know, this thing goes to this person at this time. It, it, we should never underestimate how how much our lives can be changed by fortuitous circumstances. You said something recently in an interview, which I thought was just going back to what you just said about never underestimating what you can do. You said there's a difference between a writer and someone who wrote something. Just give me the distinction between the two, because I think it ties back nicely to when you wrote Obstacle. Yeah, I, I think I think I was saying there's a difference between an author and somebody who has a book, right? You can pay someone to write a book for you. Uh, you know, you could you could maybe have one uh, one random you know mediocre idea in you, but to do this uh, to do this. M- over and over again and to get better at it, to sort of pursue it as a craft, that's the hard part. Um, And and that's sort of what I've tried to dedicate myself towards. It's been a real privilege talking to you. Thank you. All right. Much appreciated. 
So that's today's show, and there are loads more incredible guests ahead in the weeks to come on the Inspiring Lives podcast. You can find all the show notes at athleticgreens.com. Thank you for joining us. Next time on the show, another incredible thought leader, a guy called James Clear. We'll discuss his new book, Atomic Habits, and get behind the curtain of James Clear. So that's next time on the Inspiring Lives podcast. The Inspiring Lives podcast series. Brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most complete supplement for a better you. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform. 